This episode is sponsored by UPS. To honor World Environment Day today, UPS is matching the carbon offsets of all packages shipped via its carbon neutral program in June. To start shipping more sustainably, visit sustainability.ups.com forward slash match. From GreenBiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here in Oakland, California. On this week's edition, what this moment means for sustainability, the quest for net positive buildings, the push to make medical equipment circular, and the new markets for urban forest carbon. That and more this week on 350. It's June 5th, 2020. It's World Environment Day in most parts of the world not called the United States. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. And joining me as she does from Midland Park, New Jersey, is Green Biz Editorial Director Heather Clancy. Hello, Heather. Hey, Joel. Oh, man. Uh, first of all, mm-hmm. happy World Environment Day. Let's check that box um, before yep. we get on to other things. Um do you know World Environment Day? What does that mean for you? It, you know, it doesn't mean much for me. So tell me what it should mean. Well, World Environment Day is uh, is a UN created uh, annual event that goes back, I think, maybe twenty years or so, um, and it's celebrated in over a hundred countries, according to uh, United Nations, on June fifth. And um, you know, for a long time, there was it was held in a city around the world. I actually had the opportunity in the last decade to attend and participate in events in Oslo, Norway, in Wellington, New Zealand. And there was one in San Francisco one year. San Francisco was the host city. Each one, so San Francisco, the the theme was cities. Uh, In Oslo, I think it was melting glaciers. And I can't remember what it was in Wellington, New Zealand. But that's what it was. It was a way of bringing people together and having a series of events. And of course, there were supposed to be events and were events and uh, in other countries around the world. So this year, the theme is Time for Nature, with a focus on nature's role in in providing the infrastructure that supports life and human development. Uh, I don't know, given all that's going on in the world, what's happening. I know that there's no physical event. It's now, like everything else, virtual and the they're i guess looking ahead to next year for for something else but yeah it's it's you know we have earth day in the united states and other countries do as well but uh, there are a number of countries where they say yeah earth day is not such a big thing we celebrate world environment day hmm okay and then i was i noticed that world Oceans Day is just a few days behind. I think that. it's Monday. So, yeah. Yeah, well, it's Monday. It's what World Oceans Week. Uh there's a big uh, summit happening. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, it, I, li- I like, I like this. Thank you for that explanation. I like the spirit of it. It's just, um, it's always World Environment Day. It should be, yeah. But you know, yeah. 
World Environment Day is probably, well, is the least of it this week. There's so much other stuff going on, and it's been a tough week. Um, it's been a tough week, I think, for all of us personally. Uh, I think it's been a tough week in the sustainability world. Um, it's definitely been a tough week in the United States of America, and um, and in particular for people of color. It's just it's it's been really challenging, and it's opened a lot of questions, a lot of much needed conversations. Um, including within green biz and within our extended community. Yeah. I, I, that word tough. I'm actually having a tough time with it. I actually am thinking of it. This is a cathartic experience. Um, but also, you know, me, I try to look at what could happen. That's good out of, out of this. I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying that we shouldn't, I, I'm not tr trying to go there yet. Um, because it's just too fraught with the, the violence and the emotion and so forth. But I always look for what we can do coming out of this moment. And that's what I'm focusing on right now. Um, already thinking about some potential resources that, that we could develop. And I very much appreciated the, the thread that, that cropped up in the middle of this week that really pointed to, and you, you did a great job of getting it out there in your piece, Joel, um, an open letter that you wrote that really pointed to the intersection between this Black Lives Matter social movement and where we should be with environmental justice, with climate justice and so forth. There is, it is at, they are inextricably, inextricably connected. Yeah. 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 I mean, and we've known that and, and we've talked about, you know, I, I like to refer to full spectrum sustainability, which, which looks beyond the environmental piece to, you know, how is this affecting people? And, and yeah, I, I mean, I, um, as we've, as has happened in the past, when the, com the community, the sustainability world is, is hurting or discomfort and just confused and dismayed and despairing, I, as in that last time that was, uh, on uh, November 9th, uh, a few hours after Donald Trump was declared the 45th president of the United States. And I wrote a note to an uh, open letter to the Green Biz community that sort of tried to make, not make sense of the moment, but tried to put it in some perspective and and uh, create some hope out of a decidedly un, unhopeful moment. And uh, th this time I, I did another open letter and, uh, you know, hope is is a challenging commodity right now. But I do think, and I agree with you, that something very valuable potentially can come out of this, assuming that it's not just a media moment or, a, you know, we all get distracted by something else, which is sort of par for the course these days, particularly under our current uh, national leadership. And that's, and this goes to those, those challenging, tough conversations doesn't mean they're bad, doesn't mean they're, I think they're hugely important and I think hugely beneficial. I guess what I was saying there, Heather, is that as a, as a white male of privilege trying to talk about this stuff, uh, these issues, what they mean to me, what they mean to the community, how I, I'm finding that it's very easy to 
even with the best of intentions and the most careful of wordsmithing to to trip up. Uh, and I'm pretty good with words. <laughs> it's my profession, like yours. It, it makes it really tough. And I think for others, I just imagine people who aren't as, you know, word conscious or, you know, wordsmithy, if that's a word, <laughs> uh, as you and I to, to have these conversations, to save things that are uncomfortable. This is, these are some of the hardest conversations I remember having in my adult life uh, around how to show up in this moment, how to be supportive in this moment, how to be solutions oriented, how to support what others are doing or that need to be done. It's not so easy. It is not. It, it, it underscores, I wasn't going to say validates, but it underscores some approaches that we've already been taking. Um, I was privileged to run and privileged, yes, I'm privileged, uh, to host a, a panel on diversity at the corporate level and in the, the world of sustainability at the Green Biz conference in February. And and I know, I know that we got some feedback. You know, pe- some of the people at the conference wondering why is this a topic. Um, and I, I think what for me, what this week, the revelation this week that I think may- maybe more corporate sustainability professionals have had, is that it has to be ingrained in everything you're doing. You have to think about it, and not just in your own company, but out in the world and what you're, what kinds of programs you're supporting, and is that really the best place for that clean energy project? Why are you putting it in a place um, where it's benefiting people that are already benefiting? Why aren't you taking that harder step of looking to where it go, should go? Why, where are you trying to change your own practices and so forth? So I feel like, um, and, and there were some great examples this week of, of uh, you know, hopefully it's not just lip service of individuals stepping forward to say, you know what, we have been totally we have been remiss in our support of this movement and we need to, um, you know, Al Gore, uh, after being poked at a little bit by a newsletter writer, Emily Atkin uh, came out and said, you know what, you're absolutely right. So, and he's making that link and, and one hopes that that will be part of the trade. He's got an online, huge online trading coming up in July and one hopes that that will be part of it. So maybe this will be a, a moment that we can start putting the right, dominoes into uh into play yeah that is the potential silver lining here and um you know it's creating those links between uh classism and racism and the institutional uh the way we've institutionalized a lot of that in our world and sustainability yeah i mean i i said in in my piece that you know we part of the difficult conversations that we need to be having is the recognition that nothing is sustainable if people are in pain. And it doesn't matter how much renewable energy we generate, how many circular supply chains we create, how much organic or regenerative food is produced if our fellow citizens are being exploited, discriminated against, threatened, or in Mr. Floyd's case, far worse. And I think that's, you know, if we can connect those dots, as you said, uh, if we can, uh, you know, show, as, as you so nicely said, how these are inextricably linked, um, 
that will be a big win the coming out of this moment and uh, you know and then what we do with that going forward how much that actually changes anything for whether it's in policy or corporate practice you know and and the private the role of the private sector here is is i think going to be incredibly important uh, particularly with the lack of, of of leadership at the policy level and i'm not just talking about the president and all those awful things that happened this week um but you know what is the, what's the role of companies here and that's a, something we we, we want to i think keep exploring and love to hear from from listeners um about that of what's the role of your your company that that that's not just you know a moment not just lip service not just writing a check not just you know having a a town hall meeting or a one off but what's going to change in your company or what should change in your company and how is that going to happen send us a note 350 at greenbiz.com let us know what's going on but Let's talk a little bit about what's going on in some other stories that we ran this week, if that's okay with you, Heather. Yeah. Yes, I'd love to do that. And actually, I think this is a perfect example of what's possible. One, the first one I'd like to mention is how the Navajo got their day in the sun. Um, right? I mean, this is this story by Danny Kennedy uh, with New Energy Nexus is just extraordinary. Uh, it is such an amazing chronicle of this deal that got done. Navajo Power, it's largely native owned, um, and they were um, getting to, ready to build a solar project. This one really intrigued me. It's so full of detail and, and possibility. Well, first of all, it's a, a long form piece, which is always great. Uh, when we can really get into the story behind the story, we don't always have the luxury of doing that. And, and uh, Danny Kennedy, who has been such a leader in renewable energy, uh, not just in the United States, but all over the world, he set up uh, or supporting incubators and accelerators for clean energy uh, in, I don't know, 30 or 40 countries, particularly in developing world economies. And so he's had his fingerprints on a lot of these kinds of things. And he doesn't talk about the role of either him personally or New Energy Nexus in here. He is, is, he typically does credits others, but I'm pretty sure he's got his fingerprints on this one. But yeah, I mean, this is a way of, of how, how to create not just a, a project on, on Navajo land that probably would have given a little money to Navajo Nation, but not really supported them. And by the way, you know, a lot of the power had come from coal, and a lot of those coal projects had not only desecrated sacred land, but polluted the skies and, you know, as, as Danny writes, poisoned their children. And this is the goal here was to create something that was owned and controlled by Navajo, renewable, clean energy. Uh, create uh, and they created some interesting finance uh, mechanisms to make this happen. There's something something called the mission delta built in between the the rate that investors were getting and, and the market rate. And you have to sort of read the piece because it's 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 like a lot of these things they get pretty complicated. But the the proceeds of of this ownership will go to is funding community benefits go to solar projects or other community investments, you know, they're capping executive compensation relative to the lowest paid employees. They're sort of doing a lot of uh, things that, you know, frankly should be 
the model uh, outside of Navajo Nation and in, in general in communities. So uh, this is just a great example of what's possible. It's a great example of how uh, the tough work it, 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 it's, that's needed, here we go, the tough word again this week seems to be our theme, but, but the tough work that goes into really figuring out the win-win here and figuring out what's not just right for the environment, but what's right for the people who are being impacted by, in this case, an energy project. Um, this kind of scenario happens uh, all over the place all, all the time, uh, but not necessarily with such positive and hopefully happy outcomes. So we'll see, you know, time will tell, but it, the, the mechanism is in place to make this uh, a win for the Navajo as well as for the planet. Well, let's pivot again and talk about climate tech. And this is something that is near and dear to you, Heather. So I'd love you to talk about this story from Ben Soltoff about uh, it takes a village to succeed in climate tech, which builds in part on the fabulous webcast that you did last week with uh, three uh, pioneering venture capitalists about this world called climate tech. Um, what's this other story about? So this other story, it, it actually uh, was a great week for climate tech web webcasts last week because, uh, uh, because Ben Soltoff is an environmental innovation fellow with Yale, with the Yale Center for Business and the Environment. And they also ran, in collaboration with Stanford and some other groups, uh, a a webcast on this topic. So, you know, one of the things that that really struck me as I was reading this was just all of the things that need to come into place to support a new technology of this nature. And it was a great parallel that, that Ben made between what's going on to develop a COVID-19 vaccine, right? Right now, and, and we've got to We've got to get the thing working, and then it has to go through trials, and then the, the challenge of distributing it. And that, in a in a nutshell, kind of describes what climate tech needs to go through because these things are are catalytic, right? They they need policy support, they need support of the corporate world, they need support of of local communities, they need research support, and they need so much thing, so many things. Um, in particular, um, in this case, finance the, the, for the seminar that that I ran. That focused really on sort of the investment, the, the venture capital rather. You know, the the link between the corporate world though and the startups that are coming up in this space though is more important than ever because their role in helping scale these technologies fast is is vitally important. I mean, without that, um, they 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 will not be getting anywhere as quickly as we need them to. And, I, and there's a, there's that sophistication. Like if you think about clean tech from 10 years ago, the, the, what we used to call clean tech, some of it's climate tech, some of it, you know, climate tech is a bigger term in my mind that, you know, really focuses on the urgency of this crisis. But the corporate world has gotten a lot better. Uh, Nancy Fund uh, says, you know, she, and she's been with DBL Partners and she's been fo focusing on this issue for a long, long time, one of the first investors in this space. And she said that, you know, when you, when you thought about what was going on a decade ago, you usually saw the, the agenda of the company being pushed, like a big company being pushed if, if it was going to work with a startup. Um, and that's not happening as much today. Now, now they're looking at these startups and saying, what's mutually beneficial? How can we help each other and so forth? Yeah, well, that's 
part of how innovation has changed in general, where as in the, in the past, big companies would say, take a not invented here approach. And, and you know, if we didn't invent it, it's, it, we're not interested. Now it's quite the opposite, which is that we don't have all the answers. In fact, we've probably cut back on our investments in R&D. And so we're looking to uh, innovators and, and whether it's through venture capitalists or, or, or directly to the startups. To, to do this, but but I think the one thing that's important here, and, and it's uh, Ben mentions it here, is that it's not all about money. That a lot of the support uh, that companies, particularly big companies, can give these startups is to do test piloting, for example, uh, or to to look at technologies and provide counsel on well. This can go into six or eight different markets, but here's the two or three that where we see the biggest need, where we would be interested if you could tweak this for so it would be it would work in this specific instance or this specific application or part of the world, and and that's immensely valuable to an entrepreneur to you know because you know understand and some of these technologies are, are so. Uh, they're platforms where you can build so many different things on top of them, or they can slot in in any number of places. And how do you choose as, as an entrepreneur? How do you take your very, very limited uh, resources and make bets based on this is where the market we think the market need is? And so, uh, and 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 that can be an eggs in one basket thing that, that very, very often fails. You made made the wrong bet, and so. That's where companies can, can come in and provide counsel, can provide support, uh, even if they don't write a check. And I think that's one of the, the big takeaways here. And I think a really important lesson for companies out there in terms of how they can play a role. Yep. And when those checks get written, they're going to be written from a lot of different places. What do you Grants mean? Grants. I mean, meaning, meaning that there's going to be nonprofit money in here, as well as potentially personal investors, right? So the the example in this story and that we that I also wrote about last week was Appeal Sciences, which it, you know was started by a grant from This is the food waste uh, yes. technology. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. Thank you for that. Um, it started with a grant, a hundred thousand dollar grant from the Gates Foundation, Bill and Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Um, but also has money from Katy Perry and Oprah and some traditional uh, venture capital firms and, and so forth. So I think that also sort of, it takes a village, which is the headline on this story to pull this together, I think is cannot be understood. The pressure for companies and cities to consider the climate crisis and the associated risks in their post COVID-19 recovery strategies is increasing. And that's shining a new spotlight on the future of the built environment and the concept of net positive buildings. The goal for a net positive structure is to make more energy than it uses, recycle its own water, air, and waste, and completely eliminate its carbon dioxide emissions. How feasible are net positive buildings and how might our new economic landscape affect their development? Here to discuss these questions are Ryan Kolker, Vice President of Innovation for the International Code Council, or ICC, which develops codes and standards used in the design and construction of buildings, and Andrew Klein, a professional engineer who is a member of ICC and code consultant for the Building Owners and Managers Association International, or BOMA. 
Ryan and Andrew, thank you so much for joining us on Green Biz 350. I hope you're both well. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. So let's start with a level set from Ryan. How widely accepted is the net positive concept and how different is it from, from net zero? Yeah, I definitely appreciate uh, the question. I think at, at a higher level, I think folks recognize the, the aspiration of a net positive building and certainly its contributions um, to society, to the building owners, to the building occupants, uh, and to the community at large. So I think from that level, folks have a, a sort of a general understanding of uh, you know, what net positive is. I think the challenge is certainly in translating that into practice. Uh, you know, when we talk about um, net zero, it's typically in the context of energy. Uh, and people really you know, can, can understand uh, the concept of net zero pretty readily. You know, they get a monthly energy bill, they know they use energy, um, and they know that there are uh, you know, renewable energy solutions that can uh, offset uh, those you know, particular uh, energy uses. And so that's really what we mean by net zero, is, is offsetting what you use with what you produce on site. Um, when we start to talk about uh, things like net zero water, um, it's, it's certainly not as prevalent as uh, net zero energy, but um, at, I think, again, at the end of the day, folks sort of generally get that concept. Um, so, you know, I think we'll see, uh, you know, an, an increased uh, exposure or interest in uh, achieving net positive buildings um, and net zero buildings as a, as a step along that way. Um, so, you know, I, I think we're on the path but demonstrating that it's achievable and getting folks, um, you know, really recognizing the, um, the economic and social benefits of moving forward on uh, net positive buildings is, I think, really where we need to focus moving forward. So how's it, how has the pandemic changed awareness? So I think the, the biggest thing is, you know, when we talk about building performance, folks tend to sort of laser in on, I just want to focus on energy use, or I just want to focus on water use, or I just want to focus on occupant health. And I think the pandemic has really shown that we really need to look across various different building performance elements and sort of figure out where is our most, uh, where's that sweet spot of balancing, you know, all of these various different requirements. And so we think about net positive buildings, that's really sort of the ultimate balance of all of these things. You know, I think as we move forward in sort of identifying how do we respond to the pandemic, we're seeing these, these sort of balancing of priorities or trade-offs, you know, whether that's, uh, you know, increased ventilation that, um, you know, uh, inhibits the spread of uh, the virus, uh, but that, you know, comes with some energy efficiency trade-offs or, you know, things like um, use of disinfectants for, you know, new cleaning protocols and what impact does that have on environmental quality. Uh, and then I think the most interesting one is uh, sort of space efficiency within buildings. You know, so we have um, emerging requirements around social distancing. And so what does that mean for, um, you know, how, say, desks are laid out? But at the same time, we also have folks that are now focused on um, telework which also provides an opportunity to, to condense workspaces. So uh, it really provides an opportunity to sort of get that, that vision and holistic approach to building performance. So one other follow-on before we move over to Andrew. 
this, this, a lot of the things you just mentioned are being talked about voluntarily, right? So people are thinking they want to do this for this, the health and safety of their workers, for their people and so forth. And for uh, many good reasons, what role will building codes play in this? You see the shift happening there? Yeah, so absolutely. One of the things that the, the code council is implementing uh, right now is bringing together uh, code officials to sort of identify, you know, what are the particular lessons learned from uh, the COVID pandemic and, and what are the applications into, you know, future editions of the code to really be able to, you know, address these challenges. Um, so we're coming up on uh, the development cycle for the um, 2024 uh, editions of the codes. Uh, and so, you know, as we open up that process, I suspect we'll see both from the ICC task group itself, but from, you know, the broader building industry, uh, you know, providing feedback on, you know, how the code should change to address, um, you know, the, these new, uh, new issues that uh, we hadn't necessarily thought of before. So, Andrew, from the building owner's point of view, what do you see as the primary reason to invest in net positive versus simply focusing on efficiency and things that we've been talking about for a long time? So building owners have a couple different priorities. Uh, not only do they want a nice building to be able to add value to an area, they also want to make a return on their investment. So by bringing a building into alignment with how future buildings will be, um, it decreases the cost that they may have to spend in the future. Um, and it also increases the marketability of the building to uh, uh, conscious companies that that want to be green. That's those are the positives. So what do you see as is challenges to this? You know, what what gets in the way of the discussion? So the two biggest challenges I see are both expertise as well as cost. So some building owners just don't necessarily know where to turn in order to incorporate these concepts into their building plans. Um, during tenant improvements, that's a great opportunity for building owners to work with designers and architects to incorporate net positive concepts into their design. You know, one thing, and this is for both of you or either of you, how, how realistic is this vision for existing buildings? Are we talking about this is going on in retrofits or is this going to be new buildings? So help me understand that a little bit, either one of you. So, uh, BOMA International mostly represents building owners as opposed to developers of new buildings. Um, I think that developers of new buildings really need to think about this because a building life, um, you know, 30 years just, uh, you know, isn't enough for a building anymore. And we're building buildings for 100 plus years these days. So, uh, extra reinforcement on the roof in order to put up um, additional, uh, whether they be PV, arrays or something in the future that comes along, um, having additional shafts going through the building so you can run conduit um, or any other type of piping that might be necessary in the future. Things like that, just making the building um, uh, ready to be able to accept new technology as it comes is something that's very important when you build a building new. Building owners also have that opportunity during tenant improvements. So net positive concepts should never be left out of the discussion. Yeah, I mean, I, I think we, we have to have the conversation around how existing buildings can um, reach, you know, net positive. Um, you know, the turnover in the, you know, building stock is maybe, you know, one to 2% a year. And if we're really looking at, um, you know, impacting, uh, you know, greenhouse gas emissions or, 
uh, community resilience initiatives or sort of whatever our community priorities are, uh, we have to tackle uh, existing buildings. And, and so uh, we've already seen uh, some existing buildings sort of go through uh, the approach towards uh, zero energy. Um, we've also seen some existing buildings deploy um, you know, water saving uh, and water reuse strategies. I think one uh, excellent example is the American Geophysical Union, which has taken a uh, standard sort of 1994 uh, office building and has brought it to uh, a zero energy building, uh, has deployed uh, rainwater cisterns. Um, so it certainly can be done. I think the challenge is, uh, you know, sort of identifying when is the good time uh, to do that uh, and whether it's an incremental approach, um, you know, through things like tenant fit outs or it's a you know, whole scale sort of deep retrofit type of activity. Uh, I think the other piece is uh, how do we align incentives uh, and other things that are, that are gonna sort of provide building owners with um, that little nudge to say, now is the time to do it. Um, I may not have sort of all of the uh, capital in place, but uh, it matters to my community and my community is providing incentives to me for me to make that, that extra leap. One final word from both of you, uh, and we'll start with Andrew. What advice would you give to building owners and managers about how to incorporate the net positive mindset into their recovery plans? So after the, well, during the COVID incident, and also if we get past it, which, which I have faith we will, but uh, there are going to be a, a lot of spaces which are going to change uh, tenants. So we will have lots of opportunities for tenant improvements in those spaces. As I mentioned before, I would encourage building owners and managers to always be involved in the tenant build outs. Um, if, if they have no interest in doing that, then of course they can write into leases um, that any tenant build outs uh, be cognizant of net positive concepts um, or, you know, certain ones can be specified there. But by having the building owners and the managers uh, involved in the tenant build out themselves, working with architects, uh, working with the designers, um, calling up specialists, then that really gives them a hands-on opportunity to know what technology is out there, uh, what new building concepts are out there. And uh, that would be my advice. Yeah, from, from my perspective, I think the, the recovery um, from COVID really sets an opportunity for uh, building owners to to sort of reevaluate um, you know what it means for an office building uh, and workspaces, and I think that that really sets up the the opportunity to have a broader discussion around well, what are the key attributes of my building, what are my key uh, performance metrics, and and how do I sell those to uh, potential tenants or potential buyers? And so I think bringing the holistic approach of not just addressing you know, an immediate uh, sort of pandemic response, but also you know, creating a better built environment. Um, we really have the, the opportunity and the interest uh, right now to, to have those types of discussions. And so I think it's a real opportunity to engage uh, the broader community and really understanding uh, and acting on uh, that opportunity and, and really thinking more holistically uh, around various different performance opportunities. Well, thank you for that, Ryan, and thank you to both of you for being with us today. I take care and stay well. Thank you, Heather. You've just heard from Ryan Kolker with the International Code Council and Andrew Klein 
representing the Building Owners and Managers Association International, or BOMA. Hi, my name is Jim Giles. I'm the Senior Analyst for Food and Carbon Systems here at GreenBiz. And with me today, I have Mark McPherson, who is one of the founders and the Executive Director of City Forest Credits based in Seattle. Hi there, Mark. Hello, Jim. I am really interested to hear about the work you're doing. I track carbon markets pretty closely, and I think as a lot of our listeners will know, forestry projects are a big part of the offsets market, and that market is growing very rapidly. But usually when we hear about forestry projects, we hear about very large projects, often in remote regions of of the developing world, but the kind of offsets you're involved in are very different. Tell us a little bit about them. So you're right, forest credits have been around for a long time, and um, the focus on those tends to be on large volume of carbon storage, and the lens tends to be focused only on CO2. And that's fine, that's great. The, the large registries have stored millions of tons of carbon. But our city forests present a very different value because the city trees not only store carbon, so not only do they provide that global atmospheric benefit, but they reduce stormwater, they cool the cities in hot weather, they help with wind chill in the winter, they clean the air, they provide human health benefits. They do so much more than just carbon storage. So the urban forest people and our sort of whole inner stakeholder group really thought it's, it's past time to bring urban forest carbon into the equation and let's tell the story of urban forest carbon uh, in a way that really does justice to the many, many benefits of our city trees. So these sound like a, an interesting and different kind of addition to carbon markets. Give us an ex, a, a sort of sense of the scale. Where are you operating? How many trees are you planting? That kind of thing. Right. Well, uh, so maybe a, a signature project is one in Des Moines, Iowa. There's a nonprofit organization there that's uh, very capable and been in Iowa for many years called Trees Forever. And they were funded by Microsoft to do a project that involves planting trees. The trees are, uh, follow the rules in our carbon protocols, so they receive carbon credits. Um, but the project is very illustrative of what urban forestry can do in that it, the project also includes a workforce training program for minority youth in Des Moines. So on sustainability, we talked about the triple bottom line. This is a triple quadruple bottom line project uh, with carbon only being one of the many benefits to the project. So that's one example uh, in Richmond, Virginia. Uh, there's an old African-American cemetery called the Evergreen and the East End Cemetery. It was uh, falling into incredible decay. Uh, the owners economically could not make it work. They had offers to log the cemetery, which was forested. So a local foundation, the Enrichment Foundation, um, came in and they decided they want to preserve that. They want to credit the trees. And so this is a tremendously important socio-cultural site there. In fact, it is the first UNESCO designated site on the slave route in the American South. So uh, I think this may be the first UNESCO site possibly in the world uh, that's actually receiving carbon credits. So they're going to preserve all the trees. It's about 64 acres. They want to open this up to public access uh, as a 
critical site of importance um, with all the environmental benefits, but even more, all the sociocultural benefits. So like I said, even though forest offsets have been around for a long time, certainly when I speak to people about them, I still encounter skepticism. People still ask me, well, I'm going to invest all this money in this forest, and how can I be sure it won't be harvested at a later date for timber or, or burned down? Now, obviously, those aren't, or I wouldn't assume there are issues with urban forests, but the reliability issue might still be there. How, how can you reassure buyers of these offsets that you're actually going to sequester carbon over the long term? Well, there, there's a simple common sense answer to that, Jim, which is these are trees planted in metropolitan areas in cities and towns. So you can literally drive right up to the trees. Uh, one of the significant attractions of projects like this is that companies can actually have their employees volunteer to plant trees to, to work on the projects themselves. So these are, these are trees that um, a company can, can literally have volunteers uh, employees engage in the work. They can drive their board members right up to the trees and look at them. So they're there. And, and the, the other thing about the urban forest and, and the urban forest carbon projects is um, in many of the forest credits, you know, you're purchasing credits from a project that may be you know, thousands of miles away. You will never know really what happens to that project. But again, these trees are right here, right where the people live and breathe and, and work and recreate. And what's the scale here? What, what are you aiming for? If your organization is successful, how many trees do you plan on planting in, say, the next five years? Well, we don't really focus on the number of trees planted because we, we have two protocols. We have one for planting and we have one for preservation. Uh, because I think the feeling is there's significant tree loss in cities now. 175,000 acres per year lost tree cover in urban and community forests. So planting is really important. We need to plant. I think there are some people that think that we will not be able to plant our way out of tree loss. So it's very important to preserve trees. And uh, one interesting fact that many people are not aware of, we are projected to add uh, 100 million acres of urban area to our cities by 2060. And that's gonna happen through annexation where cities are growing and they'll just grab some forest land on the boundary or in some cases farmland, annex it in. And uh, so we're projected at 100 million acres. And if we could preserve even 1% of that, uh, that would store 100 million tons of carbon. The co-benefits on that, and our scientists are able to quantify the stormwater runoff reduction, the air quality, the energy savings, co-benefits are something in the order of $2.8 billion. So that's if we're just able to preserve 1% of that projected add, added urban land area. So our focus is not so much on number of trees planted, it's on projects that make sense for a community, and the number of trees is only one part of the metrics on that. Right, that's huge for context, and it's a significant amount of carbon involved as well. It does sound like the co-benefits in particular are a really interesting feature of these offsets. So Mark, thanks so much again for joining us. Uh, this is Mark McPherson, who is one of the co-founders and the executive director of City Forest Credits in Seattle. Thanks so much, Mark. Thank you, Jim.
The iFixit repair site is used by millions of people a year to fix an amazing assortment of things from cars to garden hoses to jacket zippers to Starbucks barista machines. Its latest addition is the world's largest medical repair database. It's a free resource that it developed to help hospitals having trouble fixing equipment. And it's a problem that's been exacerbated by the COVID-19 pandemic. The site's CEO and founder, Kyle Weens, is a well-known champion of the right to repair. He joins me on GreenBiz 350 to chat about iFixit's latest project and why more product vendors should be rethinking their repair and service policies. Kyle, welcome to GreenBiz 350. Thanks for having me, Heather. This is going to be fun. Okay, so share the backstory for the medical equipment resource. I understand that it came together in just two months. So who helped you pull this off? Well, this was, uh, we realized kind of the moment that the, the pandemic hit Italy hard, that ventilators and medical equipment was going to be critical. When you put people into an ICU, there's a lot of machines that are used to keep people alive. And that, that equipment was going to be pushed harder than it had uh, in a long time. Uh, and you know, normally this equipment gets swapped out. There's preventative maintenance that's done on it. Uh, if you're in a crisis situation, it's harder to do that. Uh, so I have had a relationship with the, the repair technicians in hospitals for quite a while. Uh, they are called biomeds or biomedical technicians. And they usually have a workshop in the basement of the hospital. And when things break, the nurses call them and say, hey, this vital sign monitor is down. They go and they get it. They take it down to their workshop. They fix it and they put it back. They also do regular preventative maintenance on this hardware. In order to do that, they have to have the service manuals for this stuff. Uh, and uh, just like we see in other areas where like Apple won't give you the service manual for your iPhone, a lot of the medical device companies are not giving hospitals the service manuals that they need to maintain this equipment. So is that because they're trying to make money off the service themselves or what? Yeah, that's what has increasingly been happening is the, the medical device manufacturers want the hospitals on their extended warranty plans where they're paying for service. Uh, the hospitals would prefer to do the work themselves because they've already got the technicians on staff. They can. And so there's this tension, there's this push pull between the manufacturers wanting to expand their service revenue and the hospitals wanting to uh, reduce costs uh, and, and overall medical expenses. So where did this information come from then? Well, that's what's interesting is that there are FDA requirements that the information be out there. <laughs> like in order to uh, create the, the medical device and get it certified by the FDA, the manufacturers have to include the information. The hospitals are legally required to have the information to do medical maintenance. And so these files are sort of out there, but there's a little bit of a uh, kind of underground railroad of service manuals, if you will, where this information is being passed from technician to technician. And every biomed tech that I've talked to has a hard drive full of files, service manuals that they have found through the years. Uh, and, and so we said, well, why don't we gather that information together, create one central resource. And so that's what we did. We, we reached out to a bunch of biomeds. We said, hey, can you give us all your files? They gave me tens of thousands of service files. And then we recruited a, uh, a group of volunteer librarians. We had 200 librarians and archivists from everywhere, from Cornell University to the Getty down in LA, uh, pitched in, helped us out, helped us deduplicate, organize, create a new taxonomy for medical equipment, and get it up on iFixit. Uh, it was the single largest project, data project, that we have ever undertaken at iFixit. It wasn't quite in the big data uh, range of, of, of projects, but it was uh, we ended up adding 13,000 service files to iFixit. Wow. So how has the, the response been to it? Have a lot of people been using it? or? 
Yeah, so what's interesting is even when Biomed had the file before, they said, actually, like iFixit search is so good, it's easier to go on iFixit and search for a file than it is to search my hard drive for the file that I already have. And that's because we use professional librarians. We created a taxonomy, if you will, an organization structure. We added metadata, we added photos, we added all the kind of information that you're accustomed to having online. One thing that I didn't realize before we got into this was just how many medical device manufacturers there were and how many kinds of medical devices there are. At a typical small rural hospital, they will have 5,000 different medical devices. At Boston Mass General, the biggest hospital in the country, they have 270,000 devices in the hospital. And so you can imagine trying to create a library for, for managing all that. You really need a tool that is at internet scale to be able to handle that. And that, that's what we do. We're internet scale repair librarians. <laughs> so we figured we could help out. So how have the medical equipment providers reacted? Like, has anyone actually said, hey, we'll help, this is cool, or what, what's the You know, we, we haven't gotten negative feedback from them. We've had some people at companies be sending us files, like, hey, thanks so much for doing that. There have been some medical device manufacturers that have already been doing the right thing for a long time, like Mindray is an example of a great medical device manufacturer. They have all the service manuals on their website. We mirrored them on iFixit so that they're available in one central place. But that's a lot of the benefit of this is having one place that you can go or the ability to go and just Google the information that you need rather than having to log into a paywall somewhere. Okay, so I mentioned before that you're a huge advocate of the right to repair, and that's kind of what we've been just talking about, but, but give us a little bit more of a sense of that philosophy, and how has support for that changed over the past few months with the pandemic? Yeah, so right to repair is this idea that we ought to be able to fix our own things, and that if, if you sold it to me, I own it, now it's mine, I should be able to extend the life and maintain it. And of course, that's better for the planet because I'm not having to mine materials to make a new product. It's also better for me because I can save money by, say, putting a new battery in my iPhone rather than buying a new one. Uh, unfortunately, most manufacturers uh, don't agree with that. There's sort of this long you know, strategy of planned obsolescence where uh, manufacturers make money by making things. They don't make money by you having the thing that you already bought and not buying another one. And so we have seen this trend where products don't last as long as they used to. The average refrigerator now lasts seven years. It used to be over 20 years. And you think about how much metal and plastic goes into making a new refrigerator and then shipping it around the world and getting it to you. It's a very significant environmental footprint. Um, so right to repair is this idea that, that we should be able to fix our own things. And there's laws, uh, uh, proposed laws that have been introduced in over 20 states that say, hey, if you're going to sell us the product, uh, we should also get the parts and the information that we need in order to fix them. So far this year, before the pandemic, over 20 different U.S. states introduced rate to repair laws. There were hearings in a number of states. It was being very seriously considered. Uh, and then the pandemic happened. <laughs> and uh, legislatures across the country have basically shut down and are not doing anything except emergency COVID-related um, legislation. And I would say that, uh, you know, on the scale of global priorities, COVID legislation is probably more important than rate to repair. Uh, but it's something that I think will be very important for the future of our civilization. Uh, and I'm excited to get back to it once, once society is back to normal a little bit. So what role do you see repair playing in like a manufacturer's circular economy strategy? Yeah, well, this is where I think it gets really interesting because it doesn't have to be an antagonistic relationship with manufacturers. Uh, some companies, you know, we, we talked at the, at the virtual event, uh, we did a panel with Dell where they were talking about their strategy and Dell's perspective has been, hey, we make products, we make high quality computers and we want them to last as long as people want to use them for. Uh, and Dell makes a lot of money off of extended service plans and off of 
uh, off of after uh, out of warranty parts. Um, I've I've bought parts from Dell for my Dell computer. It worked it worked great, and then they have service instructions online where you can buy the parts from them. So I think you know, Dell uh, and they've they've done this from the beginning before the circular economy became a thing. So I, I think that's a it's a strategy that we're going to want to see more companies follow. It's, it's going to make sense. It's going to make sense for, for companies' uh, pocketbooks, but it's also going to make sense for the environment. Now, I, I know that Motorola has been doing some things in this, this area, or they've at least advanced some pretty cool ideas. Can you tell me a little bit more about what they're doing? Yeah, so Motorola uh, reached out to us and they said, hey, you know, no cell phone company is making parts available for their phones. Um, and that's a, a huge difference from where things were like Motorola invented the cell phone industry, right? And uh, it used to be that you had your phone and the battery popped off the back and you could swap in another battery. I'd keep an extra battery in my bag. Uh, and that just hasn't been the case ever since the iPhone. Those batteries have been locked in and you can't swap them out. Uh, and that is artificially limiting the life of phones to about two years for most people if you never swap the battery. Motorola said, no, we, we want to make, we want our phones to last longer. We want to make the batteries available. Uh, and so they reached out to us and said, can you put together repair kits? Because, you know, now it's not just pop the back off. You have to actually open the phone up. You got to have a screwdriver, that kind of thing. Uh, and so we worked with them to develop some repair kits that have step-by-step -step guides and, and parts. And so now you go to Motorola support and they give you an option. They'll say, hey, you need a new battery or screen for your phone. You can mail it into us and we'll repair it. Uh, or you can, you can order a kit from iFixit and do, and, uh, do it yourself. Uh, and if you think about mailing your phone to somebody and going without it for a day or two, <laughs> that's kind of terrifying. <laughs> I don't want to do that. I am, I'm more afraid of not having my phone for two days than I am of fixing it myself. And so a lot of people are taking, taking Motorola up on that. So one final thing before we wrap up, just what, what, do you, what are some of the things that a manufacturer could do to make repair more straightforward, kind of move towards this? Are there things that they can do in the design or with their services that, that would make it more straightforward and, and would put them in the right path? Yeah, I, I really like working with product designers because there are so many things that are pretty easy and uh, intuitive once you get into it that make, re the, uh, that make repairs easier. We call it design for repair. There's also design for recycling and design for repair and design for recycling are very similar strategies. Um, so we've worked with outdoor companies like REI and Patagonia to help them uh, design their products. And it turns out most of the time it's, it's simplifying things. It's thinking about, okay, you've got a zipper on a jacket. What can we do? You know, the zipper is usually the failure point. You have a garment for 10 years, the zipper eventually fails. What can we do to make it easier to swap out the zippers? So you don't have to buy a whole new jacket. You can just get a new zipper. Uh, Patagonia has repair instructions on their website that will show you how to change the zipper in the Patagonia jacket. Uh, and then if you want to do the repair, they will actually send you a zipper. Just call up their customer support, tell them what you need, and they'll, they'll send you a zipper for free. Um, so that's, that's part of how they're building out their brand imaging. And then Patagonia, their business model has been, well, we're going to take back our old clothing and we're going to resell it. So they have a program called Warnware where you can buy a used Patagonia jacket from them, which I think is pretty slick. Uh, so that is an example in an extreme uh, situation where I don't think most people think about fixing apparel, right? Usually our problem is that we have too many clothes, but in, in outdoor clothing with durable, durability is a factor. And so I think that it's really cool that they're stepping out and taking leadership like that. Well, thank you for sharing your perspective and uh, joining us here today on Green Biz 350. Thanks, Heather. This was a lot of fun. You just heard from Kyle Weens, the CEO and founder of iFixit.
This episode is sponsored by UPS. To honor World Environment Day today, UPS is matching the carbon offsets of all packages shipped via its carbon neutral program in June. To start shipping more sustainably, visit sustainability.ups.com forward slash match. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. As always, you can go to greenbiz.com slash 350 to find out more about the organization, stories, and other things we mentioned this week. And while you're there, check out our six free e-newsletters. You can go to greenbiz.com slash newsletters and find out more about them. And as I said earlier, we always love to hear from you. Email us at 350 at greenbiz.com. Heather and I will be back next week with another edition of GreenBiz 350. Until next time, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Stay safe, stay healthy, and thanks so much for tuning in.